Ladies and gentlemen, uh, here it is. I don't know when exactly we'll post this, but we're recording on the Tuesday uh, of the week before Christmas. Um, everybody's feeling giddy. Michael Martin, are you feeling giddy? No. No. <laughs> no, no, it's still Advent for me. But uh, but I'm going out today. I There's nothing I hate more than Christmas shopping. Because the only thing I have to buy is something for my wife, and it's the hardest job in the world. Because of Bonnie or because of you? Are you a perfectionist? or? Oh, no. I mean, no. I don't know what to get her. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. I don't know what to do. I do not know what to do. So, no. and I, I, I don't buy clothes for her. Never buy clothes for a woman. I'm just telling you right now. I oh, just, thank you. I Thank you so much. Off. Yeah. Really? I, really? I think I, I can probably take it back, but. <laughs> My wife's so, yeah. a piano teacher and she teaches in our front porch, which is quite cold. Oh, so I can, I can just go in and buy a nice sweater, right? As one gift. And she's always, it's just another sweater. She's going to wear She's teaching piano and <laughs> she's, uh, seems eminently grateful for it. Oh, uh, well, as a, uh, along with other really thoughtful, wonderful things. I don't sure. think I'm a good gift giver. Well, you're a thoughtful and wonderful husband. No, That's no, why. No, 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 no. Do her students get her anything? Yes, it's the cutest stuff. So we could decorate five Christmas trees. She's been teaching. She has 60 students and teaching for, you know, 20 years. And uh, so we could have five Christmas trees, <clears throat> all with uh, ornaments based on, you know, music, music notes and music things. Oh, I was wondering if they got her like scarves or hats. <laughs> oh, no, people have been very, yes, that too. Uh you know, they, when she began teaching, they'd call her Mrs. Sauter. Now it's kind of Mrs. Amy. So some of the, the mugs or things she might get, you know, have to see the evolution of those, but it's delightful, delightful. And she just had her Christmas recital on, uh, on uh, two days ago on Sunday, there's a little Methodist church across the street from us and we just kind of use it. And, uh, the, the kids play the, the carols and when they're open to it, then the people can sing along too. So every year there's a number where the people are invited to sing along. Yep. yep. Good, honest fun. So Tara, we, they, uh, our listeners heard your voice, especially if they're listening on the, the podcast and not the YouTube. And a very familiar voice, a very familiar face, uh, a friend to Michael and I. And uh, grateful to have you in this week before Christmas because we're just going to talk about things like Christmas. This is our Christmas first ever Christmas Regeneration podcast episode. Um, Thank you. I'm I'm so excited to to talk about Christmas because it's <laughs> it's such a huge part of our culture, and yet we talk so much about the busyness. Yeah. So talking about Christmas itself is always a pleasure. And you're happy to share with the listeners too that you're expecting, you know. Yes, I'm happy to share with my listeners. I'm expecting a um another baby, right around March, late March, and. Um, to distract myself from Braxton Hicks contractions, I am doing a little Christmas crocheting. <laughs> so. I, I like I like the technique there. I just yeah. had to write a bulletin column for uh, our church bulletin, and uh, a wonderful lady who's worked for thirty nine years. She's retiring in the first week of January, and I was mentioning um, how you know during Christmas we think of expecting expecting the baby, but and I've seen this in some Waldorf literature too, but like. Our culture needs more, more language surrounding, you know, ex what do we expect of uh, people in their teens? What do we expect of maturity? And then the biggest one is post-retirement. Does our culture have any expectations 
for people or are they you know just sent out to pasture and so forth right um and i think you know this christmas season of expectation we should be aware of all those all those births that we're expected to do um thomas merton has an essay where he at least started to rudimentarily outline what's called of us you know when we get older but that's a that's a real a tricky stage so i was thinking even in the christmas season we can be thinking about those expectations i'm 54 or 55 i really don't know and um you know that we all have expectations too yes i mean so and that's as i recently wrote in my blog so at advent it's typically a difficult time you know spiritually i think and we talked about this a bit last time and uh so and it's an expectation i mean that's the theme of advent right mm -hmm. and so we, actually we did a kind of a cool thing yesterday um with one of our former guests mary Jo arresti hmm. she came over so there's a bit of a story of this so I, I mentioned when i was uh training as a waldorf teacher and i would work with mary Jo, who who does curative work or extra lesson stuff they call it in the Waldorf school and she was really excited because she had this new thing this new therapy she wanted to to see how it was a little bit more it was a little bit involved and she wanted to t test it out on me wow and it, she got it from the Camp Hill movement I know it's well. a beautiful movement um and it's called the Madonna sequence but Mary Jo always calls it the Madonna treatment. And what it is, <laughs> it's really Madonna. beautiful. It's and so what it is, it's a, a kind of contemplative experience using music, usually a lyre or something, and in and cultivating a mood of reverence, like we talked about, where a sequence of images of um Renaissance Madonnas comes you know is before the viewer and there's no no talking or anything there's no explanation you just experience this uh, and it starts with the Sistine Madonna goes through several of Raphael's and one of the, the one the one painting that is not a Madonna is Raphael's Transfiguration I can't picture it right now uh so the cool thing was so it's it's a therapeutic um process so the way it happens is and she did this with at home here with the kids um because she's basically a member of the family so she and i told her last summer when i was doing a drop off for the csa which she belongs to i said you know we you got to come over and do the madonna treatment be, <laughs> the kids need that and she, I, I said we should do it in advent and so she, see, she came over yesterday and my kids are pretty especially my two youngest are pretty rambunctious um 12 year old boy right that's like that's like that's why people don't want to teach sixth grade because 12 year old boys inhabit sixth grade and, and they're little mouthy buggers but anyway so two of my three of my kids even my daughter who's 19 and on mondays and thursdays bonnie also tutors like in a hedge school form uh her niece and nephew so they were here and they're like eight and 11 or something so what started with this madonna treatment is she had the kids in our parlor which is a big open space and uh and they were standing in uh, like like a five-pointed star 
And she did some movement things, the arrhythmia using beanbags to get them uh, accustomed to their peripheral vi vi uh, vision and doing other and coordination. And then they 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 were throwing bean bags. They'd got three going at one time, in, throwing in in a five five pointed star pattern. Then we went into the kitchen, which is another large room, and the kids sat at the table and. She had them use red and blue block crayons, and she showed them a, a picture that she had drawn of a rose surrounded by blue. And all, and she said, I just want you to do this. You don't have to do it. It doesn't have to be like mine. It could be like anything, but I'd like you to draw that. And they all did it. Drew this rose with the blue surrounding it. I mean, it's this perfect Gertian color theory, right, where the, the red comes toward you and the the blue is embracing, right? Just like in images of the Madonna. And so after they did that, you know, there was a candle lit in the kitchen and I was playing a, a little kinder liar we have. And Mary Jo showed the sequence of the images, you know, gave it about 30 seconds per image. There's, there's 13 of them, you know, 15 of them. And it was amazing how the energy in the room just mellowed out. It was just, there was a, such a feeling of reverence. Mm. None of the kids were goofing around. Even the dog fell asleep <laughs> and it was and it, and it ended and the kids were quiet for three minutes. And you really, really felt something sacred had happened, which is, uh, which is was you know the ultimate thing going into um, well be inhabiting this this space of Advent and, and anticipating the birth of Christ this this Sunday. So it was it was really healing. I thought for me too. You know, it was really for all the the darkness we contend with sometimes during Advent. This this seemed to bring um healing and healing is, is the best word for it it was really a, a beautiful and sacred experience and so so that's what's interesting to me i mean I, what about this whole season is um how we can cultivate the the combination of you know containing the sacred but at the same time um you know, doing, 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 doing true conviviality and, and carnival even, right? Where you celebrate, right? So, and I think that's an important, and but that's especially for us, that's what happens during the 12 days of Christmas, really cultivating the celebrate, celebratory aspects of the season. Whereas Advent is more, you know, if you like, like we when we talked to, to Matthew Milliner, you know the the readings during during Lent, especially the traditional readings in the in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Anglican Church, which still maintains them, all about John the Baptist in preparation. Right, it's intense stuff. Right, it's intense stuff, but but it's also you know reifies this this mood of expectation. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. I've been, what you said was so lovely and I really wish I was her neighbor too. Um, 
but thinking about the season and I, I read your beautiful piece, Michael, um, about a midwinter's tale, which I very mm. much want to watch now, but I think this, the past few advents have been much more peaceful for me compared to, you know, maybe a long string of very somber ones. And it's interesting to sort of go back and remember that feeling of expectation. I think when you're surrounded by young children, that sort of joy and the, and the incarnational thing is very present. But as, um, as you were also saying, uh, Mike Souter, there is, what does it mean for people who aren't surrounded by small children or who are older? What is it? I've been thinking a lot about Rudolf Steiner's talking about in-breathing and out-breathing and that how rhythm can replace strength and sort of separating, for me, separating activities so that we, today is a quiet day in our house. It's an in-breathing day, a resetting day. And those are good times for reverent activities like lighting a candle at night and having a quiet dinner and then thinking about that out-breathing activity that we can do, which obviously like right as soon as Christmas comes, that's when you start, you see everybody, you go to these big parties and Advent and Christmas, <laughs> our culture are pretty blurred together. So by the time Christmas comes, you've already expelled so much energy that you kind of retreat and trying to, trying to sort out that rhythm again is an interesting process. But the, um, the Renaissance Madonna seems like a very good way to hit that tone. Doesn't the, um, a book we've mentioned, Michael, the Emil Bach book on the liturgical year, you know, mm -hmm. he offers, I'm not so sure <clears throat> to unpack it right now, contributes to the reverence piece so much, but it could, but he's taught, he makes a distinction between, you know, Tara was saying that Christmas has been kind of like morphed into Advent and vice versa, but he, he makes a distinction between a holy rush and an unholy rush, right? So frenetically driving around in cars, uh, trying to get everything, you know, just, we're fatigued. So we just put like the really fast Christmas songs on, uh, things like that. That's obviously an unholy rush, but he pointed to a holy rush. And as I say this, you know, I've, I've actually quoted that a lot, but as I say it, I wonder if you guys would say what constitutes a holy rush? You know, I think if somebody, a week ago, if somebody asked me, I might have been able to offer something. I'm not caught up in an unholy rush right now, but what do you guys think would characterize a holy rush? You, you know, that's, it's funny you say that. I used to work for a nun and she had me, she was writing a series for um, the children at the school about how she became a nun and what that process looked like. And she told a story about the, the novice, novices being late for mass and they're all running. And their mother superior sees them and says, never run, never run, not, not even if you're late for mass. And I thought that is, <laughs> she said at the time she didn't understand it whatsoever. And then as the years have gone by, she's understood it much more. And I, I feel like I can see why not to run, but to imagine what a holy rush would look like. I, I guess the closest I can maybe think of are like the shepherds, uh -huh. right? Yeah. But even then, what are they running or are they just walking with purpose? 
and I've, I've read that Bach essay so many times, I'm trying to think of even what he says, you know, but one is, you know, obviously, uh, let's say you didn't get, you didn't go to the mall once, let's say you never bought anything at a store, you're still, you know, Michael has talked about in his house, you know, the advent wreath moving through the, um, you know, the kingdoms of nature. Uh, there, there's a lot of things we can do. I had a meeting at the parish, the wonderful parishioners had set up. Um, prior to Advent, we had a conversation on like young, young adults and their addictions to screens. And we all agreed that that was us too. You know, that all we can do is model it, you know, that it was kind of resolved, at least in our parish. Some people were invited to begin small, right? You know, uh, tech-free Thursdays. But then we met again last Sunday, these kind of parents who wanted to start, you know, kind of supporting one another in this. And, um, you know, uh, there was the hostess, she had wonderful things. She's a Waldorf mom, but like there were so many, you know, journeys she was taking with her Advent calendar, the Advent wreath, uh, readings, songs, the, you know, the songs that come. And so, you know, those things combined uh, can be a form of a rush because there's a, a decent amount, but uh, definitely filled with reverence and holiness. You know, Michael, this is, I think, your house more than it's mine. Well, I still have smaller, well, they're not small, but, but, uh, and I think, you know, and that's what I actually I was told him at, at Tara's instigation. I, I started gathering materials for this book I want to write on celebrating the festivals. Good. And uh, and a couple of them just came in the mail. Let me, can I do a show and tell? Yeah, to... Now this one, do you know this book, Tara? Well, it's been out for a while, right? I think we have, no. Oh, it's been out forever, yeah. Okay, I and I had, we had a copy years ago and i couldn't find it and i so i bought a new one and it's by marion green i think she was like a kind of neo-pagan christian kind of british person i don't know if she's still around but i loved about it i mean there's a hey, neo-pagan british person my name is michael martin <laughs> pretty much yeah but what i love about it is i mean the stuff on the festivals is okay um some of it's better than others but at the end of every every chapter, so she goes by the months, and she starts in February, and uh, but she has recipes. So I just happened. Well, let me let me since we're talking Christmas, let's see what she has for Christmas recipes or December recipes, because okay. December not only you know is it Advent, but we also have the Feast of Saint Nicholas and the Saint Feast Lucia. of Saint Lucy, right, yeah. which are important. So here are her recipes uh, for December. Jugged hair is one of them. How about that? What is it? It's uh, hair. Oh, it's one hair or so rabbit. Um, with, ooh, cooked in bacon and red, red wine and butter. Oh, my God. I already love this. <coughs> we haven't had the. And then he has, she has a red cabbage dish, which is red cabbage and apples and vinegar, which we've had that before. It's good. Then this stuff called Glühwein which is a German drink served hot and is their ideal for winter parties. So it's got red wine, brandy, orange juice, lemons, cloves, and cinnamon. How about that? Or brandy snap. So it's not just <laughs> for kids in yeah. this book. And actually, I think, I have to look, I think in the May section, she has a recipe for, uh, maybe it's not May, well, some, I can't remember what month it is, but she has a recipe for making hard cider which was the first time I attempted fermentation back in the day. 
based on her recipe 30 years ago yeah mm-hmm. and and i think what so this is cool i mean this is you know think about the sacredness of a meal i mean every meal is a, is in a sense a kind of eucharist right why why did why did christ uh take the passover the seder meal and transform it into even something more sacred than passover which passover is pretty pretty sacred um coventry patmore the eucharist was a meal so that every meal may become a eucharist exactly and so how can you know how how do we bring that into our and our experience of eating in in this country in this culture is just like that uh unhealthy rush very often right I'm guilty yeah. of not fast food, but like my wife's a piano teacher. And so she's usually teaching during the dinner hour. And um, you know, I suppose it makes those meals that are slower for us um, more special. But I'm just saying like, you know, pretty much guilty as charged on a lot of Well, yeah, that's what, that, and that happened. And my mom, you know, God bless her. One of the things, she was a really feisty Irish lady, but man, but so when I was a teenager, when my youngest sister went back went into school my mom went back to work so during the week was pretty chaotic our house was you know we would definitely have meals as a family every day but everybody was rushing around then when i got to be in you know in high school and um i had jobs after school i was never home for easter but or or for meals or very seldom home for meals but what my mom did because she knew that was all chaotic during the week she made sunday a big deal so she would make a big meal on sunday and eventually it was kind of interesting um our friends would start to show up at our house on sunday because my mom always made more room and sometimes we would you know we had four of us kids and my mom and dad so six but sometimes we'd have 10 11 people at the dinner table on a sunday just because people would stop by and they wanted to they felt attracted to this very commonplace but very sacred activity of sharing a meal together mm-hmm. where you can speak. And I and I and what we try to do at our house, especially during this season, or especially during the 12 nights and the 12 days of Christmas, is um attend to that even more. So, you know, you're having people come over. And sharing these these meals together, and it means something, you know. It's be, and you because you're taking the time and um, you're bringing um, you're bringing everything to it. You're bringing the world and all its celebrations and all its troubles, but you're also bringing the sacred into it because we this is what we're there for a reason, right? You know, this is it's called the Christmas season, the Christ Mass. Right. Um, so I so those are important things, which is so, you know, one thing for us is I always break out the the mead on, on these uh, on these celebrations. But I, every, but Bonnie tries to make it special too. She has like special kinds of drinks that she makes. Um, what's one called? Oh, I can't remember what they're called. You know that have like cream and brandy and white wine and all this other stuff in there, and then you know, <laughs> you know just to make just to make it you know to 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 call attention to the differentness of this this season, mm-hmm. right? 
that you don't have this in the middle of the year. Like, actually, actually, she makes uh, authentic eggnog as well, right? A lot of separating of eggs on that one. Separating eggs, and yeah. we have lots of cream. So that, we now have a new. You know, we have our classic eggnog store bought, which I've always enjoyed. But we have a new kind of upscale dairy in the Rochester area, Pittsburgh Dairy. And it's a really high-end yeah. eggnog. And boy, 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 it's a different beast entirely. It is. Uh, <laughs> it's I so made, good. I made it several times as a kid. And uh, the recipes I followed, probably Betty Crocker, you know, it was it was too rich for me. I felt like I was drinking eggs. Tara, what do you guys do? <laughs> Honestly, I'm just not joking. We've been getting this custard. It's the stores around us offer an old-fashioned custard only in December. Um, and the children love it. And we love it. We what added- does it look like? It's something you would scoop into a bowl, you know, because we have like a frozen custard here and I know it's No, not- no, this looks, it looks like a, like a cream. Yeah. Like it's in the same sort of glass jars you would buy cream for, you know, or half and half, okay. but it's, it's thick and it has a mild spice, but I haven't made anything like eggnog and stuff until the, the kids are a little older and maybe they have more advanced palates. Yeah. <laughs> So would you, where, how do you serve that custard? Um, oh, in the for, in cups for the kids. Nothing yeah. too special okay. right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. We have some special meals. I mean, we have a lot of special meals around this time. Um, but the custard is sort of just like a every day, like every few days, like it's Advent, you can have something special. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's in the store. Uh huh. So I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm really thinking about this holy rush and unholy rush. And, you know, I, I, I love the story of the Christmas dinner, but I'm still, I mean, of your Sunday dinners, Michael, but I'm still having, I'm thinking about your mom in the kitchen and moving around and I'm not seeing it as like, maybe I'm getting caught on the word rush and confusing it with busyness. And it's so difficult for me to imagine busyness being holy. Mm-hmm. I think I just, maybe I live in a culture of t- people who love paperwork too much. But when I think of busyness, I just have such a negative connotation with Can it. Can we get at it a little bit? If um, even after I mentioned, I was kind of struggling with that myself, even though I've used it as something of a pole star for Advent, a holy versus an unholy rush. Mm-hmm. But especially in the minds of kids, you know, what we have is an anticipation, right? You know, no matter what, they, they're excited about Christmas. So that can be frenetic or it can be kind of channeled, you know, and I think that starts to get at a little bit like not that, you know, we're not like in the season of Advent, we're trying to do a holy rush. I think it presumes we're taking for granted that there's excitement about Christmas Day. And then, you know, going backwards, how are we using that excitement? Because there's an energy there. Is it in a productive, uh, not in a productive, but a holy way or a non-holy way? Right. I think that's a nice thing to think about. I mean, the end result of your mom's dinners was a not even one meal. It's bringing people together over a long time so that the meal almost becomes a church. Mm-hmm. And what I think of is so much of the busyness of the season the unnecessary busyness is that people just kind of scatter and they're glutted and they go home and they fall asleep and they watch TV. And in January, they're not refreshed. They're exhausted. No. Like exactly. you know, the story of anybody with a January birthday is so sad. 
because everyone is sick of being together. They don't want to be together. They want to detox and they want to try out a diet. And I love, I love the new year and starting over and thinking about new things to do, but I hate that idea of being of Christmas, not renewing you of not feeling like the past few years, I'm so excited for 12th night <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I'm excited for Candlemas and I'm really excited for Lent and the whole culture seems to be they're tapped out. They're done. done yeah, I, and that's because I mean, I'm part of that, you know, our, and I haven't heard too much of it this year. Thank God. Maybe, but for years and years, uh, the, the messaging in the media or like radio in particular, I'm thinking of something I've never watched TV in decades is that, you know, Christmas sales are up or down or wherever <laughs> they are compared to last year, you know, retailers are worried, right. It, and, and Christmas became a retail festival. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's when, it's when capitalism came to save the world, right? Uh, and I was been so I was so I'm look going through all these all these books like um so Marion Marion Green's book and I got this one Christina Hull's A Dictionary of British Folk Customs mm-hmm. which is okay uh, but this old one I have British or pop British popular customs present and past by by Thistleton Dyer make which yourself is, a good blood sausage which I tried to do after reading one of those books. <clears throat> years ago you know, this I, is i went to the butcher and got blood and tried to you know i hung them in a, a barn outside that didn't work for me oh wow uh, yeah. published in 1876 originally um you know, or even if you look at the golden bow even though it's um trying to trace the the traditions but what's interesting is you see these and and, and i think i may have mentioned it before you ever see this british series bbc series a uh, tudor monastery farm I haven't, but everyone in the world has told me I need to watch it, and it's on my it's on my advent to do list. <laughs> and they, but they have a Christmas show, they, so they show what they do to prepare for for Christmas, and they show what goes through Advent, and it's really wonderful. My kids love it, and uh, but what what dawns on you as you go through this stuff is how much of of what this tradition is was uh an uh, an agrarian or rural uh expression of life and having grown up in the city and lived in the country for the last oh, 20 some years um you really realize that it's it's easier what i'm saying for people who live in in the country to try to adapt these things or adopt them in these kinds of traditions i think totally where it's where city life is not conducive to that and, and uh which is uh you know something rudolf steiner said is that you know the the reason people feel ang- anxious in the city is because they don't know how to breathe Right. And so he said, you want to you want to heal the city, learn how to breathe, hmm. which is, you know, which is, an, you know, I don't think <laughs> it hasn't worked so far. It's a good, a good theory. Great theory, though. But I you but you get more of a sense of breathing outside of the confines of the city. Right. I mean, not just not just breathing 
with your own <laughs> biological <laughs> organism, but the breathing of the year, yep. as Tara was just talking about, right? The breathing of the year. And and this is where we celebrate. I mean, this is the Christmas festival in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, is this tremendous time of the in-breath of the earth where everything, all the life forces of the earth are breathed into the earth. They're held in and they all, and they come out after the winter solstice after, after Christmas. Right. So, and it starts to move out that way. And um, in Jesus, the imagination, was it number six? No, number five, uh, the garden. Was it four? It was four. Uh, when I did an interview with Gunther Hauk, who's the the biodynamic beekeeper, I mean, he's like he's a legend. Um, one of the things he talked about, we talked about rhythm, right? And he's talking about exactly this. So right now is obviously a low activity time in a, in a beehive, but when we get to Candlemas, which is February second, or right around the Feast of Saint Bridget, which is February first. Um, and it's, and also with chickens, right? This is when the, the queen starts to lay again. No eggs, brother. I'm getting no eggs. No, same here. No eggs. But because the, it's One, a natural rhythm, right? But they, but when it gets to February, you'll be overwhelmed yep. with eggs, right? Yeah. And which is when the chickens start to lay and the, the queen bee starts to lay and, mm -hmm. and, the, and our, our, uh, and the seeds start moving underground around Valentine's Day and so forth, right? That's another great Coventry Patmore poem, by the way. Well, it's we true. We have to do an episode on Coventry Patmore. <laughs> and uh, we do. And remember that that I, that legend that that on St. Valentine's Day is when the birds pick their mates, right? Mm. I like it. Do you think, and not to take this a different direction, but like since we were talking about Steiner and Emil Bach. And I'm just like the Holy Rush and the Unholy Rush. I'm a little bit guilty because I'm forgetting some of the distinctions. But there's a theme in that book, which I think he's accurately and honestly reflecting Steiner, is that, um, and I see this in William Blake too, Mark Vernon, who we had on. If you have time, he's got a brilliant episode on how William Blake looked at Christmas and the nativity. But um, <clears throat> and I'm going to make one more connection. Uh, last week when we had Matt Milliner on, we were talking about how Chesterton, you know, and Tolkien, and all these ones, you know, could we use them to comment on today and to comment on the future as opposed to this kind of nostalgic feeling? So William Blake on Christmas is wondering if uh, he's, he's wondering even in his time, if it was bringing us too, too nostalgic, you know, this theme of like, you know, you and me hiding against the world, two sparrows in a hurricane, that whole worldview. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, Steiner and certainly Emil Bach are pointing to say, you know, Epiphany is the festival of the future. Um, and I'm even going to hazard a guess that when we were discussing kind of Christmas, you felt me kind of like, ah, oh, you know, ah, oh. um, you know, maybe my own visceral sense that like I don't have Christmas figured out. I'm not so sure I want to have Christmas figured out, you know, that it is, you know, at the very least Christmas. And I'm not using pejoratively the word backward here, but Christmas, when we think of the mother, the Christ child in the manger, it's backward looking. You know, Epiphany is looking kind of forward to the future. And right now we see not only society, but like the world going to hell in a handbasket. And the notion of kind of taking refuge in nostalgia, taking refuge in is a real danger at this time. You know, I was just reading an excellent book by this Gerald Hurd that our friend Guido Preparata put me onto. He was one of these guys who uh, 
was hanging around with Huxley and Alan Watts out in California. This guy strikes me as the best of the best, a, a real genius. But he, um, maybe the most eloquent diagnostician of the, the temperament of going backwards versus the pushing through to the future, you know, and how we need, we might have to reconsider like how we pray and the, look at the festivals versus whether at this point, because the temptation is so real to go back. This thing we're teasing all the time, Michael, with a, a certain view of Tolkien and Chesterton and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you think, you know, Michael, let me kind of say to you or, or Tara too, uh, am I accurately kind of reflecting Steiner, you know, that they thought like over time we would take more of an epiphany minded spirituality at this time of year? I don't recall that. Yeah. Um, I know it's there in the but, Bach book. Yeah. But Steiner makes a big deal about Christmas. I mean, uh, at the Christmas conference is when he dedicated the first sure. Gertianum. Mm -hmm. And I don't have it available to me, but there's this one. So when I was a Waldorf teacher, one of the things we used to do, and I don't think they do anymore, is we would do we would put on uh, these Oberufer, which is an island in, in the Danube, I think. They had these plays that they had been preserved, like in the age of the Brothers Grimm. And one was the Shepherd's Play. And we would always do this one for for the students, and the teachers would would not would not tell the kids. They always we always said, "I have a dentist appointment today." You don't. You're going to be in that play. No, my teeth hurt. So, and we'd be in the play, and it was riotous fun. And but it was also it was very sacred, you know, about, uh, meditation upon the incarnation. And as we mentioned, the holy rush, where where the shepherds rush. To Bethlehem to see the the child, right? And uh, of course, a little aside. So one year we did the shepherd's play, and I played the oldest shepherd, Crispin, and Mary Jo was the the Virgin Mary. Huh. And so at the end, we have to dance around the shepherds, and I was dancing. I I, <laughs> I had a I had a particular vibe going, and I, I made the Virgin Mary laugh on stage, but. Uh, <laughs> She broke character. Um, or did she? But so we would do that. You know, we'd have this and it was a riotous fun, really riotous fun, uh, very, you know, exuberant mm -hmm. and sacred at the same time. But then sometimes we would also do the Three Kings play, which is from the same island, which is that we would not do for the younger children because you don't want to, you know, there's, you don't want to talk about the, the slaughter of the innocents to little kids right so we would do it for the older children and we often do we would do it for the community as well right mm. um but i the the but but going back to your your point about nostalgia i mean i so so i think what what's wonderful about steiner and what i really kind of this atmosphere i kind of live in is how to not slip into the past you know not to do the not to do the Tolkien or even mid medieval cosplay, and and this is what Steiner was doing: how to how to bring, how to meet the future, but not to lose what's sacred about the past at the same time, right? Because we live in a culture that wants to destroy the past, destroy mm -hmm. history, destroy the church, destroy any kind of cultural memory at all. So, how do we maintain this cultural memory but still move into the future? And as your point about uh, epiphany, like I think it's important. Um, that um, it, it does move to the future. But the thing is, the way to celebrate 
the proper way to celebrate Christmas is through the 12 nights, the 12 days of Christmas or the 12 holy nights. I do think which moves that. from the not not what from the past to the future. Right? And it's in, interesting in the in the British tradition anyway. The Monday after Epiphany was known as Plow Monday. When they would bless the plows and bless the fields. And, and of course, you can do that in England because the ground is not hard as a rock like it is in Michigan. But but the idea, right, is that so you, you've gone through the 12 nights, you've gotten to, to Epiphany. And I don't know if you guys do chalk the door at Epiphany. We will be this year at church. I haven't done it at home so much, but it had been a thing at church. We always do. And I make it, you know, since I'm a Waldorf teacher and I'm good with my colored chalk, <laughs> you know, I, I chalk around the lintel and I do it on the inside of the house so we can see it all year round. Mm -hmm. If I put it on the outside, we won't see it. So I put it on the inside so we can, we can look at it. And I usually don't erase it until the beginning of Advent the following year. Um, and it's a, it, just these little things are, are reminders to everybody. And especially when you build them into your, to your, seasonal celebration you you like 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 tara mentioned earlier right rhythm replaces strength and just it seems like a, such a simple thing but the you do these things rhythmically year by year or month by month or day by day whatever they happen to be and it does build strength into not only uh, like the community of the family and and and, and the extended family or and friendships but also your own a constitution right it can kind of an or, a reorienting that constantly goes on and i think that when we get to, i mean like you said epiphany is a feast of the future right they're pointing to the future and in the eastern church uh it's not the the arrival of three kings that's celebrated at what we call epiphany they call it theophany and that is the the baptism of, of Christ that's celebrated right there. Right. And I was, we were talking, so the readings we mentioned in, in, in the traditional readings for, for Advent are all about John the Baptist. And I was, when we had house church this week, I mentioned to the, to the family, I said, you know, it's interesting that um, the gospel of St. Mark, which was probably the first one written, it starts with the baptism so does John, right? It starts with the baptism of the Lord and not with the Christmas story. Because, and also Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. And so Mark is like, he's like a poet because he's concise, right? Less is more. And he gets right to what's important. And what's important is the baptism and the mission, right? He gets, he's very mission-driven, that Mark. Mission-driven. So I think, but I think going back to my point, my point is if you don't have the culture history, you have no, you have no sense of the future. There is no future. Agreed. And we can make a distinction there between, you know, I've always seen, I, I wrote an article at Front Porch, but it was uh, on how the Immaculate Conception seems to me to be the actual, the, the feast of memory, right? A divine sap escaped from Eden and it blossomed <clears throat> in the Virgin Mary and that the power of memory as it was for the romantics, you know, trailing clouds of glory from which we come, um, that they, when we use our Illichian, the worst is the corruption of the best, which isn't like Illichian, it's much bigger than that, that, you know, um, nostalgia is the corruption of memory, right? You know, there's a book, there's a chapter in Christopher Lash's 
uh, great book, uh, you know, The True and Only Heaven, Progress and Its Critics. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a seminal book, I think, for theology, because it really draws the most powerful distinction between nostalgia, which you and I keep on referring to, which is the cosplay versus thing, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, people whose only vacation is to go to Colonial Williamsburg and to just imagine when life was simple and to like bemoan our life now. Or again, the Christmas where the goal for so many people uh, in a busy life and they don't like their jobs is to never get out of their pajamas the whole day, mom, dad, and the two and a half kids. And then the fructifying force of memory that when we recall happy memories from childhood, it gives us the strength to move forward. You know, and I think if everybody kind of in their mind had that kind of a status check between memory and nostalgia, like we do again between hope and optimism, for example, they're quite analogous. Uh, we'd be we'd be in a pretty good place. But right now, without that distinction being drawn mm -hmm. all the time, nostalgia is just winning the day because to move forward is so god awful terrifying to people. You know? Right. <clears throat> and you know, you know, remind me of the you know, that famous uh, line from Angelus Lysias, right? If Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, not in thee thyself, then thou art lost eternally, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> the idea of Christmas being always already happening, just like mm -hmm. the crucifixion and resurrection, right, the ascension right. are always already happening, right? It's not a museum piece. And this is what our our own culture, our post-Christian culture tries to, to uh, relegate uh, Christianity to the museum, right? So, so when we imagine, when we're talking, I love the, you know, nostalgia, um, it's the corruption of memory. And I was thinking the other day about how many people I know who are caught up in the city, not the rural life, and how many of them still hang on to Christmas as being something very important to them and yet they don't dare go near the old pagan myths, you know, the old solstice traditions. They, it's something completely sentimental and they themselves like bemoan the consumerism of it, but won't let go of it. And they don't, they want to seem to want to make something different of it um, or at least preserve something without understanding it. And I wonder what, what does it mean to redeem Christmas for people who sort of dwell in the machine, who don't really have access to rural culture, you know, some of the poorer people. I mean, for them, it seems to become very didactic and more moralistic. <laughs> you know, when you see people go into the city to bring Christmas, it sort of takes the form of serving food to the homeless, which is very worthy. But, but how does that rhythm get that rhythm and that sense of the sacred get restored in the city? Is there a unique, how does Steiner teach the city how to breathe with Christmas? Mm -hmm. Is there a way to do that? That isn't, you know, Hallmarkian that isn't um, schmaltzy, schmaltzy. Yeah. or, or inauthentic. And that's what I think Steiner was or, trying or to do. Right prohibitive for people who can't who can't have any access to agrarian traditions you know that's I love these festival books I collect them um and they're wonderful but there's also the difficulty that sometimes things can seem so expensive <laughs> to replicate or especially when you're just starting out so well and so here's what I noticed so 
when I was at the Waldorf school, it happened. The cultivation of that sacred mood was, was a big part of it, right? Even though the frustration for me was that it was always in danger of becoming a boutique or something the parents left as soon as they were out of the school, right? Um, but nevertheless, you see how that, and, you know, for better or worse, I mean, here's a Waldorf school, which at least it's a temporary community. And as this temporary community, it cultivates the, the sacred in a way I've not seen even in most parishes, right? Um, so that's 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 one way it happened. Where I, and of course the school I was at was in the heart of downtown Detroit, right? Um, so you can see it happen there. Um, but it's it's so I think it's it's the cultivation of reverence and and rhythm. And this is the problem with the city is it's arrhythmical. Right. So how do you within that context, how do you cultivate a, a rhythmic awareness? Right. And the and the Steiner School is great about this, at least it used to be, with cultivating this rhythm of the of the seasons and of the, the Christian festivals, which I think they've mostly abandoned by now, um, which is grounding. And as we all know, those Christian festivals have uh a venerable connection to the agricultural cycle, which I think was what, what, you know, I was already interested in that even before I became a Waldorf teacher. And that just kind of proved how it works to me. And this is in the city, right? So, and then it takes, um, well, it just does. The thing is what I've noticed, it takes a little effort at first. It feels daunting and impossible until you do it. Mm -hmm. then it's easy to do it after that because um, you establish a rhythm and you establish this rhythm. It's, it's, it's in your etheric body. It's in your astral body. And, and because of it's there, it's in your ego. So you can, you can bring something to it, but breaking into that is really hard really to start something and to do. And the thing is you can do it one time, but if you don't do it a second time, or a third time, it was just this thing. But if one, but once you do it two or three times, it becomes part of part of the rhythm, and it carries itself. I remember it the day itself. my wife and I came back from our honeymoon. You know, it was the first meal we were going to have together, and I can still remember like whether prayer was going to be a thing. She made tuna casserole, and I, I always wonder like momentous decisions are made at the oddest of times. <laughs> You know, that we could have prayed before the meal or we could have. I don't think her family was praying at meals at that time. I grew up with it. I didn't pray when I was on my own eating or anything. But we sat down and uh, she was not Catholic at that point. And uh, staring at, you know, a Corning dish, God bless the local company, Corning, uh, filled with tuna casserole. I just made the sign of the cross and said uh, a prayer. But like if, if it didn't take place that first day, and this is very much to your point, Michael, you know, things can get lost, too. Mm -hmm. you know? that it's just the rhythm. And so you, you mentioned having people come over to your house on those Sundays. Um, I mentioned that like when we do eat as a family kind of all the time, it's not as slow as we'd want. And again, some kids would miss, they'd have sports practice. But when all the neighbors who've been in our house, that's the thing they all crack up at and they love it, is that they all know our prayer at the beginning of meal. That is so countercultural now. Mm -hmm. And then kind of one other small thing is that um, when we talk about the city and the agricultural rhythms of the uh, the rural countryside, 
I'm not so sure it moves things forward, but you know, in reading Oswald Spengler, you know, when he talks about the decline of any civilization, you know, some of his check marks include, you know, a fake intellectualism that emanates from the cities. Check. Um, cities <laughs> check. <are> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Cities that are parasitical on the countryside. Check. Right. But also just a divorce, a, a, a not an understanding. So you know, if we worked, you know, through these. All young people, right? Especially in Rochester, our uh, our public markets are booming nowadays. So there's a great hunger, and uh, right now we tend to see cities that are divorced from the countryside, and uh, some fatalists would think we're destined to go all the way uh, to the decline of the West, you know. But uh, Steiner himself reviewed Oswald Spengler's decline of the West, and he wasn't cheesily optimistic. Again, here's another one: optimism versus hope, nostalgia versus memory. Um, the uh, you know, that we're always trying to rebuild, but one of those things we can do is support. Now, it's not the same thing as saying farmer's markets, but like when we see young people and they're so hungry to see that, just to, to name it and to say they're doing the work of regeneration by going to the farmer's markets and talking to those people. They're doing something equally as important or more important than us talking about this. You know, but once cities weren't always this way, in a sense, they're not ontologically separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and and. And that's, well, it's the pathology of our age, right? And so now instead of the cities, now we have, you know, um, social media and the internet, which can be become the new, right? They've been calling it Twitter, right? It's the it's the public square. Right. What's well, not? <laughs> I mean, it's a public weird thing, square. but it's not really a public square. Hmm. I get you, but it's a public forum, perhaps, but it's not the public square. You've got some comments on that, Tara. Oh yeah, no, it never sleeps. It's the ultimate a rhythm. She's the best yeah. in Twitter. <laughs> I mean, oh sorry. No, I mean, I've, you know, it's if the city is arrhythmical, like social media is anti mm -hmm. anything. It's just always on. It's mm -hmm. a machine. Yeah. What was this book? Oh, Jonathan something twenty four seven. Did you read this book? Oh yes, yes. What's his last name? Begins with a C. It's escaping me, but that's yeah, fantastic. I have it someplace in the house. I have it over there somewhere. Yes. Yeah. But it's really, and that's one of the things you nailed is that you know it's the triumph of the the, the World Economic Forum model of how things are, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Which is talk about arrhythmical. Those cats are pretty arrhythmical. <laughs> I'm not even sure they're human, but uh, but so so to pull it back in. So how will you spend these holy nights, these 12 days of Christmas? I'll speak first because mine is probably the least developed, but it's, it's fine. You know, that we'll, um, you know, I have work in the church. And so on Christmas Eve, um, I'll, I'll let people know, too, that like in our in our county south of Rochester, apart from the, the Trappist Monastery, I don't think there's a single midnight mass oh. uh, in the whole. Really? Uh, yep, yep, yep. And, uh, you know, are these things we just kind of take at face value or not? I don't know. Uh, anyhow, um, you know, we'll, a family will come into town. We'll go to mass on Christmas Eve. Um, if there's a, you know, running the parish, I might have to run out for one Christmas day. Then we, uh, we have a, one of our son-in-law who's coming. This will be his first time at our house. So last year, they've been married for two years. They went to his family's house. He was shocked that we'll go to two different places on Christmas. We'll wake up at our house, go to my wife's mom's house, and then not too far, uh, my brother's place. And they're pretty active. 
And I think he's always, at least from my daughter saying that he just always Christmas, he lives in South Carolina. You just woke up and he, again, not staying in pajamas, but you just, the whole goal was you didn't move that day. And we'll go to two places. And then the, the nights themselves, because I've worked for the church, really low key work weeks that we do have a nice rhythm, but this year we're going on New Year's Day, my wife's great grandmother, uh, her family has longevity, <laughs> but her great grandmother, this one only is turning 100. Another one that was 107 just died the other Jeez. year. But, uh, well, we're going to a birthday party near Columbus, Ohio. And uh, that seems like a great thing to do on New Year's Day, too. You know, and the, the way that our own family, our celebrations within our family, like birthdays, color those days i always find to be beautiful you know they, they give them different intonations that are very well received by me otherwise they can feel kind of too rootness you know mm -hmm. um i think we are going to have a quiet christmas eve here um mass right oh, christmas i'm sorry christmas is sunday uh church and go see some family um, most of that week we have, I have, it's a special week for me because it's one of the last times I'll get to have all my kids home during the day, um, without the baby around. So I've sort of planned out some different crafts and activities to work on with the older children, just each day to have like, it's, you have a very unoriginal name for it, just special time, but they're going to each have special time with mom and dad and work on different activities. Um, my daughters are really into myths right now. Hmm. So we'll probably talk about Irish myth and Norse myth every day. Um, and I'm going to try to teach my children how to crochet. And every, I think every night we really like having, you know, during the year we like having this, but there's so much, so many activities. So I just, every single night having um, a candle on the table the lights kind of low and having a quiet, peaceful dinner. I've planned all my menus and I'm really, I'm really excited about that. Every other woman listening to you, Tara is so jealous. I think if my <laughs> wife heard you say like you planned all the menus and uh, my wife adores you. She's listened to every time you're on. Oh, <laughs> I hope I get to meet her one day. <laughs> it's astounding. I planned all your menus for that week. That's well, great. I'm not teaching piano lessons every day. Uh, yeah, but you're deliberate. And yeah, just, it's great. It's great. So it are what, what? intentional. And I think my, my good deed is going to try to be talking to everyone I can about celebrating 12th night. You know, we have a guest one night and, um, you know, last year we did and people were like, what, what, mm -hmm. why, why would you do that? But as, as you said, Michael, just reminding people about rhythm and reverence. And that's, if that's all I can do, then that's something. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean there's that tradition that the, uh the the 12 days of christmas foreshadow your experience for the, of the following year right so the first day what's what's january going to be like the second day etc right mm. uh, or even especially people i didn't know that That's people will pay attention to their dreams during those those holy nights to 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 get some messages from the spiritual world um so i think that's part of it you know realizing this is the kind of a time outside of time which we don't like to, we do, our culture doesn't do this. And, and I mean, Mike, you know this, growing up in the Catholic church, I remember I'd heard about the 12, you know, the song on the, the 12 days of Christmas, right? And, and you're like, what do you mean 12 days? It's like 
Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then the tree comes down. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, 12, and I would ask my mom, I said, how come we don't do anything for Epiphany? Because because we just don't do, people don't do that. Well, and you also know, the, like, Catholic, the Catholic Church was so tied to the Catholic school system, right? And we had a break. Yeah. Um, if we had been, if Catholic schools were in operation, I just know we took our cues. You know, so May Day was big for us. John the Baptist, obviously, it's completely non-existent. But I think it's because the Catholic school system said which feasts were important because you did it kind of around the school. The parish was even run kind of by the school, you know, but I, yes, your experience, your recollection is hundred percent my own too. Yeah. So, which is wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's been, you know, been co-opted by industrialization and capitalism in a way, you know, get back to work. Which, which is, you know, this is what happened during the, the Protestant Reformation in England, right? Where the, the Puritans outlawed Christ, Christmas. Or, and and we've seen not only in the, the, the Protestant Reformation, but in the Counter-Reformation and, and Vatican II, the, the diminishment of the saints' days. And even the, the diminishment of the numbers of saints. Right. Sorry, Saint Christopher. <laughs> the, uh, you no longer can carry the Christ. You don't. Up. You don't exist. I do too. Yeah. But he's going to have to get across the river on his own. Yeah, that's right. Jesus is going to have to pay. Um, so yeah. So those kinds of things. So and I remember, you just intuitively knew as a kid that something was really wrong that we don't do these twelve days of Christmas, and how come? Uh, so. And like you said, Tar we decided some years ago we're doing the we're doing Twelfth Night. That's just all there is to it. Mm -hmm. We're doing it, so we do the bean cakes. We do two that way. One of the women or girls, and one of the men or boys can each be king and queen. And so we do that, and uh, we actually go out and we sing to the apple trees. We wassail the trees. I thought well, that's one of the things Bonnie makes. I remember the other thing she makes is is called syllabub. That's the one with cream, and then she makes wassail on on a, and that wassail is basically apple apple cider and wine and brandy or something. It's with fruit in it. It's kind of nice. I mean, you can well, and you can also make a non-alcoholic version for children, yeah, and that they like it. Um, so we go out and sing to the trees. Here we come, a whistling, right? <laughs> and uh, we also will often read poetry. In fact, um, last year was it last year or year before? Very because one person I always invite for Twelfth Night, and they usually come, uh, is a Jonathan Geltner, who we whom we interviewed a couple Great few job. weeks ago, and his wife Katie and their two kids. And uh, and I always tell John, bring a poem. Bring something, and his wife's a poet. So, whether it's a poem by Robert Herrick or something else, I let him pick. We'll we'll do something like that, or even he'll find some. He's really into Irish language, so he'll find some obscure Irish poem or something. So it's kind of cool. So we just do that, and we sing songs in the kitchen because that we have a big kitchen, and we we have the cakes, we have lots of treats and stuff, and and it's just lovely and fun i mean it, and it usually isn't very long maybe we're here for two or three hours maybe we play games but it's and it, like i said and we started doing it and it's now just built into the etheric body of the family and, and it's just something it's part of the rhythm right and we look forward to it 
And the kids are already what talking you make about is it. so important. You know, again, you, you do it once, you do it twice, it's built in. You know, the um, but I might in our in the same parish where uh, it's five again, former parishes rule. I was thinking of uh, I haven't read Rod Dreyer in months, but it was uh, I think he was quoting or maybe it was like Pat Deneen in this group, you know, the post-liberals, but mm-hmm. they were saying how Victor Orban, you know, I'm not into theocracy or anything. I'm not as enamored of him as other people are, but he gave a speech where he was saying that this, uh, the immigration happening. Now there's downsides, right? Like we need to kind of know who we are, but he was saying, welcome that immigration because we're a culture that's in decline and the Hispanic immigration can give us kind of new blood. But I know in our parish, uh, if you, if you wanted to celebrate 12th night, but you didn't have it in you, you know, to look, you know, we have a wonderful Puerto Rican community. We have a wonderful Mexican community. It's alive and well there, you know, and, and it's great to say that like in the Catholic church that we need to learn, you know, from this new community, you know, and I, I try to do that. I'll admit the first time I had had this job running the parish for eight years, started probably 15 years ago. And a prisoner came to me and uh, through Catholic charities, they were going to do a 12th night, you know, Trey Ray type of, um, celebration and mm-hmm. you know what we did talk about the worst being the corruption the best um so the hispanic community came out in droves there's you know 150 people there but they got some local guy to lecture them on their own custom of 12. Oh. <laughs> it was just so painful my uh, my friend father ed dylan who we've had on the show he just had to walk out you know oh. um it, it was just uh, the fact that it happened you know, what type of mental state was there instead of learning, you know, that somebody stood up and said, on this day, this, this uh, population does this. Uh, and so it was a travesty, but there's another way and we can keep at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah, I and mean, that's, and I think what's interesting, you're pointing out these Puerto Rican and, and Mexican communities. Well, well, what they're doing there's, as they're bringing their folk traditions with them. Right, yes. which is all these things that well, I've been talking about—the twelfth, the bean cake, or whatever it happens to be. Yep. These are folk traditions. Yep. These are not church traditions. Yeah. These are these are folk traditions that 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 the faithful have developed, and however it happened over time, that become kind of grafted onto the cycle of the church year, right? Which. And and that's the thing is that these tr- these folk traditions the ma- the maypole is a great example, um, are the first things that get kicked out when the churches want to tighten up ship, which is what happened with the Reformation and then it happened with the Counter Reformation, right? And that's a travesty, right? Because then you're left with bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. That is the rise of bureaucracy right there, right? Clericalism. Right. Yeah. And, and no longer is the priest in that way a part of the parish. He's a representative of the of the, the bureaucracy. Yes. Right. The like a, he, it's the church is no longer a parish. It's a field office. The living body of Christ is now to be administered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not supposed to get any uppity ideas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a little, a little cynical about <laughs> Telling, telling people that they're not to uh, look for this Holy Spirit in the world. Yeah. Great. So we hear uh, anything else, Tara, Michael? Um, I'm just thinking, I'm, just, I'm thinking about all the stuff we're going to eat, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
because we're actually we're doing Christmas either on Christmas Day or the day after. One of the, I have to tell Bonnie. I think we should have the goose on Christmas Day, and have the leg of lamb on on the day wow. after, because I think the I think there's more meat on the leg of lamb. Okay, and we'll have more people on that day. I um, but, if I could recommend anything else to anyone, it would be, it's such a good week to find something special to read, to sort of set the tone for the coming year. And I'm I'm reading some Grail Quest stories right now. Uh, Nice. I think thinking about the excitement of Christmas as kind of a quest, <laughs> like the, the the quest of God to come to the world and incarnate and the quest of Mary and Joseph to get to Bethlehem and then all the other quests that follow. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's a good week to not, not drown in the, the schmaltz, but to look at the incarnation as this very exciting thing that happened. And it should be thinking about it should regenerate our souls for the years to come. I bought all of my four kids, uh, two of whom are married, a third is engaged and a fourth, but, uh, and we'll have the author on sometime. I once had a wild correspondence with him, but uh, I've mentioned it before. His name is Peter Beagle and he wrote a- Peter Beagle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I, I love him. Brief... I had a brief. So the last unicorn, the great, the last unicorn is one of the most brilliant books ever written. It's one of my favorite stories ever. I've read it a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I can quote the whole movie line for line. And yeah, I wrote the, the movie is great, and then it's just something because you can't, you can't say the movie is anything other than great. But then you read the the book, and you just and the realize. book is yeah. fantastic. It's Tolkien esque in its ability to kind of hold this kind of line between the world and so forth. But uh, so I bought all four of my kids. Uh, a copy of that so for their next generation i hope nice. again it's, it's magical right for that for that so we'll have peter beagle on sometime michael you'll have to read the book It'll i will have to read the book yeah <clears throat> it's sociological in the extreme it all plays with memory and um uh, just all the themes you would resonate with so i'm well. gonna write that down yeah. yeah i wrote a silly review of it on goodreads once when i was very young but it was yeah. very positive and his manager reached out to me connor cochran they had a big lawsuit falling yeah, out. They loved it, but okay. I, I really need you to have him on the show because I need to hear about this correspondence and what he likes. He's yeah. I just, uh, I mean, he was he was fleeced like my hero Stephen Bizinch. He was fleeced for most of the royalties from uh, a lot of his. Was he? Yeah, and the follow up to the Last Unicorn called Two Hearts that won the Hugo Award for the best short piece of fantasy. And I don't read much fantasy, but the. Um, Long story short, I just had some college kids and I noticed the ones that kind of seem to be genius and might have a religious vocation or a real mystical bent. One thing they had in common is they had all been wildly influenced by the movie, The Last Unicorn as children. Oh. So I wrote to Peter Beagle thinking he was too, it would be like writing to Tolkien or something. He was too <laughs> far removed. And um, I uh, wrote to his publisher saying some of the themes I saw in the book and wondering if he could send us a poster because I was going to start a Last Unicorn Club as a subset of the Newman community at the college. And uh, I got an email back that just said, uh, Mr. Beagle is desperate to speak with you. Because the, uh. <laughs> the themes I saw in The Last Unicorn, he just resonated. So then I asked him, Tara, about the butterfly sequence. Like, what the hell is going on with this scene? <laughs> it's just a brilliant correspondence. Anyhow, uh, so again, that's uh, for anybody, if you're looking to get a book that can, uh, if you love Tolkien and you've read it so many times and you want something shorter, uh, this thing is right up there. This thing is right up there. So here we are. And um, 
Michael, your screen looks frozen to Tara and I. Can you hear us? Wow, maybe not. It does look frozen. Yes. Yeah. Maybe he went to cook the goose or something. But uh, <laughs> raced out to get the Peter Beagle book. <laughs> yeah. <Maybe laughs> right I'll send him a copy, Mike. He didn't have to leave the freaking podcast. <laughs> um, it's not that expensive, bro. Well, anyhow, Tara, it's been great seeing you. Uh, you know, you're uh, you're expecting a child to say due sometime in March, and uh, I ask our listeners, uh, those um, of the praying sort, to keep you in prayer, as I will during this time. Thank you. Yep. And so have a, have a wonderful Christmas season and we'll catch you on the flip side sometime, Tara. Okay. Thank you so much. You okay. too, Mike. Yep. And thank you for everybody. For listening. <laughs> yeah. We'll miss Michael here. Thank you for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you again, maybe in two weeks. I haven't talked to my co-host, Michael, to see if we're going to take the week off or not. He just said, I got a text from him saying the internet went out. Love you, brother. Merry Christmas. I'll see you, Tara.